Those who are joining us for the first time. And might I begin just in prayer? And I would encourage all of us to just uh, quietly in our own hearts center ourselves down, moving from where we've been and what we've been talking about in the donuts to where we need to go. Heavenly Father, we do thank you so much for the models that we have that you have seen fit to record in your holy word. We thank you, Holy Spirit, that you inspired a Gentile by the name of Luke and that you supernaturally superintended that this word would not only be written, but that it would be translated preserved, protected, pushed even into our generation and, and are now taking it into electronic means that Luke would be flabbergasted to even consider what he wrote on some parchment centuries, millennia ago is now in cyberspace. And yet, Lord, we know that no matter how you have inspired it, no matter how you have superintended it that we need you Holy Spirit the same Holy Spirit that inspired its writing to come and inspire its reading and understanding and probably most important its application in our lives so come now have your way with us mold us through this most holy word and Heavenly Father we do pray this for your glory in the power of your Holy Spirit, in the name of your Holy Son, our Lord and Savior Jesus, who is the Christ. Amen. All right, I'm going to start off by, I want you to turn to Acts chapter 12 as just kind of a, uh, a humorous way of, of getting us started, and then we'll, we'll get into some of the things that we were at last week. And to put this in context now, the church in Antioch has started. We talked a little bit about that last week. And James, uh, the brother of John, the, the, the brothers that were disciples and also cousins of Jesus, uh, he's just been killed by, by Herod. And so the apostles, the disciples, are, they've kind of started to get into this fearful st state, you can imagine. <clears throat> and now Peter's in prison, and you start in verse 6, you see that he is sleeping between two soldiers, all right, but now jump back up to verse 5 where it says, Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer was made for him to God by the church. So now back to verse 6. Peter was sleeping between the two soldiers, bound with two chains, sentries before the doors were guarding the prison. You get the picture? He's not supposed to escape. But this angel of God stood next to him, and a light shone in the, ships, in the cell, and he struck Peter on the side and woke him. Get up quickly. The chains fell off. And the angel said, dress yourself. I, I, I'm thinking about my 19-month-old uh, grandson. I mean, this is, this is what I have to do. Get up. Let's get dressed. You know, wrap your cloak around you. Follow me. He did so. And he went out and followed him. He did not know what was being done by the angel was real. He thought he was seeing a vision. 
And when they had passed the first and the second guard, they came to the iron gate leading into the city. It opened for them of its own accord, and they went out and went along one street, and immediately the angel left him. I, I love how Luke, Luke puts it. When Peter came to himself. How about that? You know, he, now, this is research that Luke has done because he wasn't there. I'm sure, now catch this, now I am sure. <laughs> it wasn't the angel or the light, the chain's fallen out, but now he's down the street. Now I'm sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me. Okay, when he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and praying. Now that was a key verse last week. We said that Barnabas, who is now related to this family, it's a family of some wealth. It's a family that has enough money that the whole gathering of all these people can join in. And some of you have those kind of houses, and, and you understand the economics of that. And she's and has a servant because now they're gathered and praying in verse 13. When he's knocking at the door, forever Rhoda is going to be remembered as the one who leaves him outside. I mean, the police are looking for him. <laughs> and she won't even let him in. And now here, here she goes back in, and they say to, to her, you're out of your mind. Peter's in prison. We, we were praying, yes, but we didn't really believe God was going to answer that prayer. You get what's happening here. Peter continued knocking. <laughs> They're out here searching for me. To, you, you get this humor, and I mean, this chapter is just full of people trying to understand who, what God is doing. But he motioned to them with his hands to be silent. He described to them all that went on. And then I love, again, verse 18. There was no little disturbance among the soldiers over what had become of Peter. Well, you get the sense of what's going on. And then we ended that, that chapter last week. We talked about that Barnabas and Saul then, in verse 25, had returned from Jerusalem when they had completed their service. Now, remember we left last week that, that they had, had gone and taken this offering down and, and they were reporting back to Jerusalem. And they brought with them John, whose other name was Mark, who's mentioned twice in this chapter. All right, now, just as kind of an interlude, waiting for uh, folks to come in, and I, I want to I do something to help us understand something. Because one of the things that, that we often get is we, we talk about how do we actually interpret the Bible. And what I'd like us to do is just have a short course in, in what we call, in the theological realm, hermeneutics. That means the interpretation of the Bible. And her hermeneutics is named after a Greek god, Hermes. And he was the god up on Mount Olympus that was a little guy, but he was a communicator, and he would go to all the other gods and give them messages. And he would also then go from a god to a person and say, okay, this god is saying this to you or that. So he was the person who interpreted the messages back and forth. It has not, it, hermeneutics has no Christian element in it at all in terms of its name. It's a Greek mythological god, okay? But that's, that's, 
what I want to do today is I want to help you understand a couple of things that will help us, uh, I went too far, help us understand how to interpret passages like this. This is the statue of Hermes. This is in the ancient city of Corinth that my wife and I had the privilege of going to. Would love to take all of you there. There's so much to see and do. And he is kind of protecting the city. Now, if we had time, we would go into chapter 17 where Paul is writing when he went to Athens. And remember it says that he was greatly disturbed in his heart. It was said that there were more gods in Athens than there were people. And that may have been the truth. You can still see the remnants of thousands of them. And so this Hermes is is one of the Greek gods that's kind of protecting this city. And this is where we get the interpretation from. So the important concepts, Luther, and I realize we're Presbyterian here, but we kind of like Luther. We agreed on, I think, 13 and a half of 14 points, so it was okay. Um, He said that we need to allow Scripture to be its own interpreter. Now, this is problematic in our world where we want science to be the interpreter of Scripture, or we want some other thing to be the interpreter of Scripture. Scripture needs to be allowed to interpret itself. So when we have a problem with with a particular passage, we don't go outside of the Scriptures, at least initially, We go within the scriptures and say, what do other passages say about that particular uh, passage that we're having trouble with? It's not that we can't use outside information because all truth is God's truth, but we do need to first look at scriptures. So we need to interpret scriptures also in what we would call exegetical way. If you've heard of exegetical preaching, it means that we're taking the scripture and we're allowing the scripture to speak to us. There's two ways of exegetical preaching. One is, and you'll see this in a lot of Protestant churches, somebody will pick up, here I just picked up the book of Jeremiah, so that means I must be able to preach through it, and they preach for 14 years on Jeremiah, you know, or however long it takes them to preach through chapter by chapter, verse by verse. In a Presbyterian, it is, it is given, uh, what's it called, Dave? I just, the rotation of Scripture. The lectionary is on a three-year basis that is basically designed that that's what we're supposed to preach on. So the scriptures that are read are the ones that are preached on. When I preached here last summer, I was handed those scriptures for those two weeks, and what's the purpose of exegetical preaching? It makes God the author of the sermon rather than the human instrument saying, I'm going to choose what God should say that we're, we're directed by the scripture. It's exegetical. And, I'm, and I think you should be very happy to be in a Presbyterian tradition that says we're going to let the scripture lead the way and not go off on some agenda that somebody has. As opposed to eisegetical that says I want to put into the Bible or I'm going to read the Bible in such a way that I'm going to get my point across. So when we interpret scripture, we need to allow the scripture to come to us rather than us go to the scripture. There's some things like this that we just need to understand. Um, When the anthropomorphic, uh, if the the psalmist says that that the hills clapped their hands, it doesn't mean that they grew arms and hands and started to do this. We have to give some 
understanding that poetry is poetry, okay? I think we're on, and, and I don't have time to go through all those, but you get the sense of that. But, he, but Luther is very clear that we do need to interpret it literally, meaning this. If it's a poem, let's let it be a poem. And, and if there's metaphors, let's understand that. The sensus literalis. Okay, now, here's the same kind of thing put in another way so you might be able to see it. We have to understand the literary genre that we need to come at with the scripture. I wish I had more time. We could go more deeply into this. But here's a couple of key principles. The implicit by the explicit. Let's take the scripture that Jesus is talking and the woman has come in and, and, and done his feet up with that costly oil and the disciples are saying to her, this could have been sold and given to the poor. And Jesus says what? Anybody? You have the poor always. The poor are always with you. Is Jesus really saying that we shouldn't worry about the poor? Absolutely not. See, that was, that's an implicit part of what he's saying. What did he say? This woman has done something great. And what he's explicitly teaching is the greatness of the celebration. And guys, this coming week there should be a very expensive something that should come, come some way, all right? There's, a, there's room for celebration and for lavishing love, all right? And so that's the explicit me message in that passage. Now, remember what we said, allow the scripture to interpret itself? We could say, okay, Jesus said, you have the poor with you always, don't worry about them. But now we have to go to the whole rest of the scripture and it says the poor you need to do things for. You need to give them a hand up. You need to help them. You need to, we get that from the scripture. So that one implicit message cannot override the explicit message. And that goes the obscure by the clear. And I'm going to, I'm going to basically end with this one. There's a few more after this that we can help you in, as you interpret Scripture. But this is one that I think is very relevant to what we're going to be doing in the study of Acts and of Barnabas. You think I've forgotten Barnabas. I haven't. We have these two basic um, areas in Scripture. The didactic is, thus saith the Lord. Now somebody give me a, a, a quintessential thus saith the Lord passage in the scripture. Love your Lord your God. Okay, love, okay. And ten commandments. So Sermon on the Mount, thus, you know, thou shalt, thou shalt. That's very, very clear, isn't it? Okay, so that's what the didactic is. The narrative is what we just read. Now let's take this to the extreme so you can get the idea of what our, where I'm going with this. Okay, Peter's running for his life and because Rhoda didn't open the door, that means that Corey Tinboom should not have opened her door to protect the Jews in Nazi Germany because she should have done what Rhoda did in the New Testament. You see, we're not supposed to always do what the people in the Bible do. The narratives are often there to show us what not to do, to show us that what, if you do that, this can happen. 
the negatives. There, there are also positives that we should probably do that, but it's always driven by the didactic. So how do you know what's a narrative? Specific time and place. It's prose, not poetry. Genealogies are, are narrative, obviously. And there's no obvious moral or spiritual point. There's no obvious moral or spiritual point in Rhoda not letting him in the door. Uh, as that sets it apart from a parable, that there is an obvious, so Jesus saying a man went down the street and saw the guy in the gutter. Okay, now that's a specific time and place and all of that, but that it could still be a fictional time and place. But the, the, but the difference between narrative and, and parable is that the parable has a definite spiritual lesson that we need to learn. Okay, now let me just stop there. Any questions or thoughts? Yeah. <laughs> it would be like we're like Rhoda. Give it a break. I'm repeating for the tape. I think. Right. That's right. Okay. Anybody else? Very good. All right, now we've set ourselves up. I want to give us a little bit of a background. And we're going to see if we can see this back there or not. Um, This gives you just a little bit of a context historically of where we're at. We're, We're just in the beginning of the first century AD, uh, year of our Lord, Anno Domini, and so we, we have a sense in which some of these things are coming to be, and I, you've got, you can, if you're the Roman historian, you can kind of get it, and if you're in the Bible on the left side, you can kind of get it. You can see how much of a contemporary that Barnabas and Paul, how much they were a contemporary of Jesus. And I think there's going to be one coming up here that will be even more helpful uh, for you just in terms of Barnabas. But I'm trying to give you just kind of a sense of where we're at historically for those of, the, for those of us that kind of are thinking that way. And the idea of when were these letters written, and there's, a, there's an early belief that, a belief that uh, Galatians was written a little earlier, like in 48 AD, and some that are a little bit later, 51 or after. We're going to get into that because the first couple chapters of the letter to the Galatians are very, very much parallel to what we're doing here. And there's some striking differences in them. And cynics and critics will often tell you, see, this, dis- this kind of thing disproves the Bible. Uh, but I think Jack could help us, uh, Judge Milligan could help us in the sense of when you take testimonies, in some ways, you know they're authentic if they don't agree. Because if they're step by step by step, that means they, they were jailed in the same cell and they compared their stories, so we're going to say the exact same thing. And, and sometimes we, at first blush, we look at the scripture and say, well, it can't be trusted because, well, look how much difference there is. 
But in reality, that is the proof that these are authentic works. They weren't trying to create some, some falsification of the records. And so we're going to move all the, way, all the way through. At some point you'll see here that we are not even really sure. We think it was in A.D. 61 that Barnabas passed away. Okay, I think that this is probably going to be a little more helpful to you in terms of this is the, the life of Barnabas and where the, the, the dates are and how it's moved from B.C. that, that, that all of these men, um, Barnabas, Jesus, they were actually born a year or two before the year zero. And so Jesus, even though he was 33, died at, at A.D. 30. And so Barnabas was probably just a couple years older than was Jesus. And he was, as we said last week, about 10 years older than was Paul. Okay. Now, I think you received a, a handout. And for those of you who were here last week, all the blanks have been filled in. That was because if you didn't keep up with my rambling, you can help yourself. But also, it helps you to know that for if you weren't here last week, you didn't have to be here to, f to not fill in the blanks. So you can have them. But there are some <coughs> blanks coming up for this week. All right. little around-the-table discussion, or if you've got chairs, just kind of gather. And I want you to talk about, introduce yourself if you don't know each other, and I want you to tell about who has been the major person, or maybe if it's more, who has influenced you spiritually. Who's your mentor? Who's been your spiritual person? So just for a few minutes around your tables, go ahead and talk about that. Nice to be back. Nice
nice. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what about you, Twilight? What about you? Try to get around the table in the next minute, if you can, if you haven't already, gotten all the way around. Actually, was the guy, and uh, we 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 did have a native Greek who worked with Scripture Union, and she helped us with the hotels and the arrangements and that kind of thing. Um, and in some in some ways, we co co led the trip, but it was it was uh, to go to the religious and the athletic sites because of what I do, and we and they're and they're side by side most of them, so it really it was really. You never read a scripture the same, that's for sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, if, if, you do, if you do the studies in terms of, of all of the looking at the pictures and, and watching the videos and, and reading, you know, you, you have a good sense the first time you go already. But the, it, it doesn't replace having somebody, her name was Bula, it didn't replace having somebody like Bula there to gave tours on a more secular basis often, and yeah, so, yeah, it's, it was an interesting, very interesting. Okay, I, I'm sorry if you didn't get to share about your mentor, and Rich, I don't know how we're helping on, on the tape over there with all that, but, okay, I was going to say, I don't know if we want to edit it. All right, I've got up on the screen, for those of you who were not here last week, to, to get a sense of the island of Cyprus that you see. And this is where Barnabas was from. And, and for those of you that are, are just kind of catching up, you can read through some of this that we talked about last week. But just to review quickly, he was from a wealthy family. He had some wealth. He was an island person. Uh, the, the, the context of that 
twelve twelve that we just read in Acts about his that would have been kind of like an aunt of his that had the house and John Mark again was the cousin and that we talked a lot about that he he was raised in a Levitical tribe he, w- he was of the tribe of Levi in, in Hebrew days meaning that these you were supposed to go into the ministry and he didn't he was a business person he was in probably some agricultural business and yet he had this sense that maybe he always had this calling and we talked last week about he he made this midstream jump maybe had come to a retirement point i'm not sure exactly where that was at it's a little hard to find but whatever it was he went and then said okay i'm going for this ministry and there was a sense in which uh, it, this is not biblical, it's, it's extra history, but I think there's some validity to it in church history that he was one of the 70 with Jesus, that Jesus sent out two by two. And he got this, it, it's, think about it, uh, those of you that have gone to our, our out west mission trip during the summer, or you went to another mission trip, it, it's almost like that. I, I know most of you have been asked by young people to, to be uh, sponsoring them for their summer mission trip. And what a great way. I, I really encourage us to do that because this is how many of our young people get started in their faith because going on these mission trips often does more for the person who goes than the person they serve, to be quite honest. But it's still got a very important factor. And so this is what we think was happening with Barnabas. And then he comes to the point where he has this it wasn't Paul on the road to Damascus, but it was, okay, God's asking more of me. And he sold this property. We, we have a sense that it might have been all of it, but we're not quite sure if it was all, but it was a major financial sacrifice. And he gave it all to the church, gave it all to the disciples there in Jerusalem. And he said, I'm going now, and I'm going to pursue this second career, if you were, would. And we talked about maybe God is calling someone here, and, and that this church is always had a great affinity for for Bill Yoder and being the missionary sent out, and we've been supporting the Wakemans, uh, Esther Wakeman, now Collins, uh, more recently, and uh, other missionaries. But who who's going to be the next missionary that this church sends out? It doesn't have to be a, a young person. It could be one of us. Who, what's God calling us to do in the same way that, that he called Barnabas out of this life that he was in? It was a profitable life. It was a good life. There's no negatives there. It wasn't sinful. Uh, I'm sure he was sinful because he's like you and me. But you get what I'm saying. But then when has God called us to this ministry? All right. Now, if you turn on your sheet there, it says his methods. There's his influence, and we talked about him. And I'm, I'm making a case for you all through this that, the, that his influence was as a mentor to all of the disciples and that Peter listened to him. James, who was the half-brother of Jesus. Let's clarify this now. There are three James that are prominent in the New Testament. Two of them were disciples. One was the brother of John. He became the first leader of the Jerusalem church, and he was the one we just talked about in chapter 12 that was killed by Herod. Now we come to the second James, which is the half-brother of Jesus. In other words, Joseph was his biological father, Mary was the common mother of Jesus and James. And this was the James that wrote the letter of James that we have, okay? I'm hoping I'm clarifying 
for you. So Peter, James, a half-brother of Jesus, Paul, John, Mark, all of these people are the people that Barnabas had this influence on. And you can read about that. And then just under that, his methods to encourage younger, troubled, unproven, inexperienced leaders of potential. Paul. Paul showed many signs of leadership. But what we're going to come to understand about this is that he was really, really rough around the edges. And it took somebody like Barnabas, who really believed in him, to get him going in the right direction. And now we're coming on this man today that we read twice about in the 12th chapter, John Mark. Now John Mark, we found last week in Colossians chapter 4, verse 10, I believe it is, that says that, that, that he is the cousin of Barnabas. He and Barnabas are cousins. And John Mark is also the man who wrote the gospel of Mark. So we have four Gospels, Matthew, which was a disciple of Christ, writing very much uh, from a Jewish perspective. Mark wrote his Gospel, and Mark was writing for Peter. Peter may well have been unable to read and write. And so here's a man who needed to have things written, and it would appear that John was one of those guys that did a lot of that. So John figures very prominently. But we're going to come to a point now, as we go through this, to find out that John had problems too. But Barnabas took him along. And then Luke, of course, wrote Paul's gospel. He wrote that before he wrote this book of Acts. And then John, which was a cousin of Jesus, the brother of James who was killed by Herod, he, he wrote the final the first three were written more closely in the same kind of time, and John was written a little bit later, as John was the last living of the 12 disciples, lived f far longer than most of the rest of them. Okay, so you see that Barnabas' method was to come along these younger people and, and put them into ministry, if you will. And his, he encouraged those creatively doing ministry. Remember we read last week that when he went he was sent, he was so trusted by these leaders in Jerusalem that, that they sent him up to Antioch and say, find out, we, we hear they're raising their hands and kind of swaying back and forth in our worship services and we, we just don't know. And they chose Barnabas. Now, that's, that's my, that, I don't know if they did that or not, but I'm just giving you an example. Uh, you can't find that in any scripture, uh, that they were swaying and raising their hands, okay? But, Sometimes I do need to clarify because people take what I say that it's actually in a scripture and I'm trying to make it more modern. So if I do that, somebody just help me out with that. All right. But they trust him to go up and see what's going on because this is a church of Gentiles. That is true. It's not just Jews. And there's some things. And you see what he did? He was so encouraging to them, wasn't he? Their style of worship didn't put them off. He saw to their heart that they loved Jesus. And he said, this is really great. And we found out at the end of that that he went and found Paul. Now let's, let's put this in context. Paul had thrown Stephen to the wolves, had him killed 
He had thrown people in prison. He's on his way to Damascus to do the same thing to Christians because he's such a firebrand Jew, you know, trying to protect the Jewish tradition. And then Jesus appears to him. And now he comes back and he wants to meet with Peter and James and say, everything's good now. And they're thinking, yeah, you're trying to infiltrate us. And remember last week, why do we say that Barnabas is this mentor person? Why is this Barnabas this influencer? Because only because Barnabas said to them, you need to meet with this guy. Would they do that? Who were they listening to? They were listening to Barnabas. And so now you see that he brings Paul. But Paul is so rough around the edges that even though they believe that he is now a transformed person into a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, they don't like him. (laughs) And they're still a little scared. And he's not the person that they want representing this new church because he's so in your face. So they say, you go back up to Cilicia. You can see Cilicia. That's where he was born and raised. As a, as a Jew of the diaspora, meaning the dispersion, that, that when, when the Jews were dispersed many years before, many of the Jews settled up there, and his father and grandfather actually earned their Roman citizenship, this is Paul now, up there, because they helped out the Roman Empire. If you look on the map, they're about halfway between Egypt and Rome, up there in Tarsus, where he was born just enough out so that you can't go one way or the other and you need your sandal reshod or your saddle reconstructed or you need a tent to beca- and this is what they did this is and so they they signed government contracts if you will now you can't find that in the scripture either but but they they were favored by the romans and they were given a, 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 a this passport to the whole kingdom and this is why paul could travel because he had this Roman citizenship. So, Paul, you go back up there, and he's gone for the better part of 15 years. People don't realize that. He's he's gone for at least a dozen years. He's not in this picture at all. Barnabas is in the picture. Okay, his character good man the same words are used of Stephen in 6.5 this, this is an obvious criteria that Luke was inspired by the Holy Spirit to say to describe the deeply spiritual and revered men Stephen was and then Barnabas was yep Yeah, there was a. Yeah, there was there was time where he went to study, and, and there was time that he just was away, and he's kind of, he's kind of on a scrap heap. And here's the interesting thing about this that you need to understand. Did he write to any church or any person that he encountered during those years? Everybody he wrote to came after he's brought to Antioch by Barnabas. 
He had no successful ministry during those years that we're aware of. It wasn't until Barnabas grabbed hold of him, put his arm around him, did he begin to have some success in ministry, which is something that we lose until you kind of get the, and piece all these scriptures together. That's a good point. It, it was many years, and we can't exactly pinpoint it exactly how many. We know it's at least three. I don't think it was 15. I think it was in that 10 to 12 range, as best I can, as best I can put it together. Um, notice that in 1124, he's a man of genuine character, this good man. He's also full of the Holy Spirit, meaning he practiced the spiritual disciplines of sacred time, sacred time, sacred tools. By the way, we're going to be doing that in our Celtic spirituality here in March and in, in something that, that, that we'll lead you through. And that he remained full because he wasn't a reservoir that stagnates, but a cistern that flows in and out. Now there's a lesson for us, isn't it? He's also known as a man of faith, as exhibited by giving up his land and going back into the ministry. Um, so personal reflection, just silently where you are, how will you be described? As a person who's good, full of the Holy Spirit, faithful? What three words would people use to describe you? What three words do you want your grandchildren, children, your associates, maybe even your spouse? Just reflect on that silently for a few moments. Okay, his call and commission. He's sent as this apostle, apostoloi, of the church, the ecclesia. He was sent as an apostle of the church in Antioch, or, or rather to Antioch. That's where he was first sent, and then Antioch sent him from there. And even Paul in Galatians 2.9 and 1 Corinthians 9 uses this term to describe Barnabas. Even Paul does. That, that puts him on an equal basis with the disciples. So let's, by a little bit of review, let's go to this call and initial ministry. So here's some of the scriptural references to bring you up to date. Acts 4.36 and following, he sold his land, gave it to the church. Chapter 9, he introduces Paul to the apostles. Chapter 11, he goes up to see the ministry in Antioch. And now he has a ministry to Paul, which is that three-cycle, watch me do it, let's do it together, I'll watch you do it. This is what he mentors Paul in and models for Paul. So they do this ministry together in, a in Antioch. They then take the contribution to Jerusalem they come back in chapter 12 that we just read and return to Antioch and they're commissioned to the Gentiles. So now they start in chapter 13, which we haven't started to cover yet. We're going to go do this ministry together. I'm still going to mentor you. I modeled it 
all the way through up till now, and now I'm going to mentor it, chapter 13, 14. But I'm going to start watching you do it. That starts to come out in Acts chapter 13. And so Barnabas continues to motivate, support, and encourage Paul, and he willingly moves kind of to the background in a step-by-step process. And this is the problem that we have, and I don't care if you're a leader in business or industry or politics or particularly in the faith realm, we get somebody who's young and bright and got their PhD and we put them right up front. No, 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 no. We need to have them have some time to learn their ropes. And what we're going to start to see here is that there's a problem when we talk about this leadership and the passing on of leadership. We're going to start to see that come out in Paul and Barnabas. But he's also there in verses 46 to 52 that even when he kind of pushes Paul out front, that he's willing to step back up when there's trouble. He just doesn't let that person die in a heap. And he's crucial to the development of these protégés. So a good leader does not leave the mentees, those he's developing, alone during difficulties. Okay, now, before we persevere and push on in the scriptures, any thoughts or questions? Did Barnabas know Jesus? Did, did, Did Barnabas know Jesus? I think there's a... By all extra-biblical accounts, he did. And he was one of the 70 that Jesus would have sent out two by two. Yeah. So he saw Jesus as Um, It's not in the Bible, but from what we can tell by extra-biblical, yes. Which we don't realize a lot. But so, so did Paul. Did, did Barnabas really know? Yeah. Well, you have to understand that there were no courses in this. I understand. But he, if he, but he saw, Jesus, then, he knew. then he had some good insight on how to do it. Yeah. Yes. Okay. Very good insight. Give, give us a little bit more background on Gamaliel's instruction. Gamaliel? That would be the tie-in between the two, right? Yeah. Yes. Thank you. Gamaliel was probably the most revered rabbi of that era, meaning of A.D. probably 20 to 40, or I'd have to go back and get you the exact dates. But he would have been the mentor, the rabbi that was, was teaching and helping both Stephen, who Paul then had killed, and Paul. They were both his students at the same time, or at least within the same They may not have been in the exact same class, but they at least were trained by Gamaliel. And Gamaliel, as you read, and this is in the scripture, when they go to say, we've got to get rid of these disciples who are preaching this Jesus, and Gamaliel stood up in front of the Sanhedrin, which was the organizing body, the the political body. uh, He said, no, wait a minute. If this is of God, you don't want to stop it. Let's just see what happens. He was the, the, the person of reason, Gamaliel was. Now Barnabas as far as we know, was never part of Gamaliel. But Paul and Stephen were. And they're all contemporaries there in Jerusalem. And so yes, Barnabas would have seen, I believe fully that he saw, and would have gotten a a lot of 
of that modeling from Jesus himself. They would have studied Leviticus, these, these people that were studying with Gamaliel and others, yes. Yeah, they're very steeped in the Old Testament, what we call the Old Testament, or as our brother John says, the Older Testament. Uh, he, they were all steeped in that, which a lot of this would have come out in as well. Yeah. Excellent point. Let's turn to chapter 13. Thirteen is now... Uh, let, me, let me add... Um, let me just say this one other thing. That when, when it says that... that uh, it's, I think it's in chapter 11... And it's verse 20, yeah, 25. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. Okay, Saul was what Paul's Jewish name was. And when he found him, and in the, in the original Greek, that means he searched high and low. He didn't have Facebook or Twitter or he didn't have Google Earth. He didn't know where he was. Because he was up there for all those years, he had to go hunt and peck and find him. So this was an effort of his because he had found the church that Paul was going to be good for, Antioch. See, nobody wanted Paul. But now, he says, I know the perfect place for Paul. Okay, so now we're in chapter 13. Now there was in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers. Now, in, in a list... The first one is the head and, and descending order according to their prominence or respect. So you have Barnabas as number one, and you have the guy who was, who was a stepbrother to Herod, number four, even though he maybe in the political system should have been the head, he's number four, and Paul, Saul, is number five. Barnabas is seen as much more important and significant than his Saul. Okay, verse 2, while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul. Again, in, in prominence of the order of the names. For the work which I have called them. And then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. Now the other side of Christ Church sending out its next, and I hope it's a series of missionaries, is that the church has to get active in this and actively be looking for this. And we need to tap people on the shoulder and say, we think that God may be calling you. Now Van and I share a little bit of a, of a background in, in evangelical friends 
And our tradition in the Evangelical Friends is that only God ordains. We don't have ordained pastors in the Evangelical Friends tradition. We say that only God can ordain. We have recorded ministers, meaning that people can record God's ordination, but we can't ordain. Now, it's a funky way of doing, in some ways, the same thing. I'm not saying that, that Presbyterians are wrong because they don't record ministers, but I am saying that there's some truth to this whole thing, that we have to recognize that God's doing it, the person has to recognize it, but then we as the church need to also try to emphasize that. And we as a congregation here need to always be thinking, who's going to be the next missionary? So Terry can go out and raise some more money for him. Terry's doing that, raising it for Esther and others. Thank you for what you do. And so we've got to be able to think about that and maybe give up some food. They were fasting and praying. So, being sent out by the Holy Spirit. Now they're by a church, but the call is from God. Right? They went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. Now, you can see Seleucia up there uh, where it says Syrian Antioch. Now, that is not the Antioch of the church, by the way. That Antioch uh, um, is a little bit further inland. But you get the sense that they say that on a clear day you can actually see from the port of Seleucia, you can actually see Cyprus. It's a, in that day and age, it was a one-day sail. So it, it wasn't a great distance, but it was a distance. And remember, this is where Barnabas was from. And when they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews. And they had John, this is John Mark, to assist them. So now Barnabas has... Paul, who's this rough guy, and we have John, who may be kind of this mama's boy, raised in this really rich home, and he's taking both of them. When they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, they came unto a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus. Now remember, Bar is the son of Jesus, which is fairly interesting, isn't it? Like in the Celtic way, Mik means son of, in Hebrew, Bar means son of Jesus. He was with the proconsul, meaning what, you know, the, the uh, political leader. His name was Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence, who summoned Barnabas and Saul. Word, word order, Barnabas and Saul, and sought to hear the word of God. But Elymas, the magician, for that's the meaning of his name, opposed them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. So it's very likely that this may not even have been his name, Bar-Jesus. He was just trying to have some influence. And so saying, I'm a son of Jesus, and we don't know that for, for specific, but this, he is not happy now that this person who he's had all this, this influence on in, in the government is now going to this religion that's one that he's not talking about. But Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, You son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of all deceit and villainy, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? Now let's, let's take that down to City Hall or to the state capitol. And, and what's, 
what reception are we going to get? Let me just say that I do believe that Luke is inspired by this Holy Spirit and that Paul was inspired by the Holy Spirit. I also think that Barnabas was sitting back there just saying, oh my gosh. <laughs> I got us in here because we have, I have this good relationship with this person. The old young life term was winning the right to be heard. He had won the right because he had done the business on the island. He, he was well known, and this guy liked him enough and knew enough about him and respected him enough to invite him to come in and tell, tell me about God. And then Paul gets up with this other, other thing. Just because we're full of the Holy Spirit and what we believe may be right, there's still a way to say it. There's still a way to approach it. Here's the, here's the theological question for you. The scripture tells us that we will be known by what? We will be known by our right doctrine, right? By our love. What is Paul known by right now? By his right doctrine. You see what I'm saying? We need to be able to see this as a narrative and not a didactic. And now, behold, the hand of, it doesn't stop there. The hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. Immediately, this happened. And he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. He's blind. Now, if you're the proconsul, what would you do? <laughs> Believe <laughs> when he saw what had occurred. For he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. He was astonished by a lot of things. So you've got to understand there's a lot of dynamics going on here. God is at work and God is using Paul even in some of his frailties. And, and so, again, we, we, have to, we have to take this narrative and interpret it by other scriptures that tell us that this may not be the best way for us to go, but I'm going to say this. If this is how God has made you, and God has, has given you this, this, this fullness, and if you are on fire for God like that, then go for it. And God is going to use it. And how many times does God use that even though we sit back like Barnabas and say, that's not how I would have done it. That's not, how I'm, that's not how you learned that in ministry 101 class. Now, Kathy, you down at the, at the center, the juvenile center down there, you've probably have seen some of both of these ways, right? But your style is to love people and love those young men down there. But every once in a while, your finger gets wagging, doesn't it? And, and so we need both. But can we be wise about it? Let's go just a little further. Now, Paul and his companions, again, this is, notice what happened. What happened there? Now, Paul and his companions. What's that? Now, he's front, 
Barnabas isn't even mentioned. Okay? Set sail from Paphos and came to Perga and Pamphylia. And now, in that same verse, we find out that John leaves them and returns to Jerusalem. We'll go on and we'll come back to that. But they went on from Perga and came to Antioch in Pisidia. This is not the same Antioch. It's a different one. That's why it's designated as Pisidia. It's not the place where they were sent out from. And on the Sabbath, they went into the synagogue and sat down. And after reading from the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them, saying, Brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, say it. And so Paul stood up and motioning with his hands. There he goes. Peter did it. There's there's the thing that the Jewish people did to say, be quiet. And and began to say, okay, now we're going to stop there for today, but I'm going to go back up and pick up on this part where John Mark left them. Why do you think John Mark left them? Exactly. That's a very real possibility. And dig a little deeper on that. He's frustrated with Paul because of all that, but what else? He might have a different mission, exactly, and we find out that that mission is much more in the writing, not so much being out there on the field. And so you don't have to be an Esther Collins or you know, Bill Yoder, you can, you can play a different role in this missionary work. Very good insight. What else about Barnabas? It very well could have been. And Barnabas was his cousin. This is family. It could also have been that he was a mama's boy and that now he's looking at those mountains. They've come off the ocean and they've got to climb. I mean, it, it, I, I'm going to guess that nobody's ever been there. It's, it's a massive amount of work. And this guy has been raised in this rich home. And he, there's a lot of reasons that probably all came together. But it's a key point in the story that we're going to have to pick up in, in another week or so as we begin to understand how this dynamic between Paul and Barnabas work out, and John Mark is a key thing, key part of that. Is it significant that this is the point at which he's no longer Saul, he's now Paul? Yeah, the name has been changed. Right. And it's interesting that he, t- he took on that name right after he met this Paulus, who was in the, in the government there, the proconsul. And what he is beginning to identify now is that he can't be Jewish anymore. You begin to see the roots of Paul's theology coming out. I and Barnabas have been sent to the Gentiles. I now need to have a Gentile name. And that one is almost like mine, with just one little letter changed. So, very good insight. Any other questions? Whatever 
That's right, John Mark. Yeah. They, they, saw, they saw John Mark as a failure. We know this because somebody wrote it. There are many other stories that were never written, which is another lesson for us. But the point that there were probably other people, we even talked about that last week, Van, that in the persecution that, that came around Stephen, that when, when the church was dispersed all over, there were other people that went many other places. And so we talked about that last week some, so very astute point. Okay. Uh, I don't want Pastor DeVries and everybody else mad at me, so it's time to really hustle and get down there to our worship. I thank you, and we'll be back next week.